You know, when I think of Great Friday, it, there's so many passages of Scripture that we could turn to and, and observe tonight. But I want to take you back to the, the night, the night before. The night before in the upper room when the Lord gathered together with his men and see what it is the Lord has to teach us. Because it would be there, he would celebrate officially the very last Passover and inaugurate the Lord's table, that which we celebrate today. And it would be that night in which he would tell his men that he would not celebrate this table again until, until the kingdom. And at that time, he will celebrate it in a way that it's never been celebrated before. It will be reflective in nature, taking those in the kingdom back once again to the cross. You know, we celebrate Calvary because everything in the Old Testament points to this day. Everything was in preparation for the cross. Everything was about a proclamation concerning the cross. Everything was about prophecy surrounding the cross. It was all about the reason the Messiah came. He was born to die. There was a purpose in his coming. So when you read through the Old Testament, there's this, there's this thread of redemption that flows all the way through it to lead us to, to Calvary, to Mount Moriah, a place that was foreseen by God. Moriah means foreseen, but it was a place foreseen by God where he would purchase your sins and mine and purchase us back that we might be uh, a part of his glorious kingdom. And yet on the eve of the crucifixion, there were so many things that took place that night. And if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to John chapter 13. And in John chapter 13, I just want to take us through the narrative together and point some things out that will help you understand the significance of this night. This was a, a very significant night. It was a very somber night. It was a very sorrowful night. On top of that, it was an extremely shocking night. But most importantly, it was a sovereign night. Night. In other words, everything about the night was, was predetermined. And that's the first thing I want you to understand about this night in the upper room. It was a night of predetermination. Predetermination. Listen to what it says in John 13, verse number 1. Now, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 3, Jesus knowing. Verse 11, for he knew. What did he know? He knew everything. It was the hour. The hour that was predetermined in eternity past. And John's gospel gives us the whole framework for the hour for seven times in John's gospel, John refers to the hour. And it began in John chapter 2. 
Remember John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana? It says these words in John 2, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now there is some discrepancy as to why John would point out the third day. Some would say it's because most of the Jewish weddings took place on the third day. That would be Tuesday of the week. But because John writes so long after the crucifixion, I believe he writes concerning the third day because this is the first reference to the hour. Look what it says. It says, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. So this is the very first reference of the hour. For the Lord came for this hour. What hour is that? It was the hour of his death. So woman, he says, as he speaks to his mother, my hour has not yet come. That's why John refers to it as the third day because everything pointed to the time of the crucifixion. And John refers to that hour. And the whole story goes on about how he turns the, 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 the water for, for uh, the ceremonial cleansing into fine wine at this wedding. And everybody thinks that, well, Jesus turns water into wine, therefore Jesus drinks wine, now for, therefore we can all drink wine today. If you think that the miracle is about turning water into wine so you can drink wine, you have missed everything about the miracle. It's a very simple miracle compared to a resurrection from the dead. That would be a pretty significant miracle. Or, or taking someone who is blind and causing them to see. Taking someone who was, who was paralyzed and, and letting them take up their bed and walk. That's a miracle. And water into wine's a miracle too. But, but why is this the first one? Why couldn't the first one be just so over the top? It's simply because the very first one sets the tone for his coming. That is, he came to cleanse us from our sin. He came to take the murky part of our lives, the sinful part of our lives, and transform it into something so beautiful, so over the top, so great, that it will be recognized as the finest of wine. That's why Jesus came. That's why the, the very next episode is what does Jesus do? He cleanses the temple. And then after that, what's he do? He talks to Nicodemus. And what's he talking about? Sprinkling clean water on Nicodemus. It's all about cleansing. Jesus came to cleanse us from our sin. And so how does he do that? He does it through his death on Calvary. So, so the very first mention of the hour is in John chapter 2. And six more times, or five more times, leading up to uh, John chapter 13, he mentions that hour again. In fact, over in, in uh, John chapter 12, some Greeks had come to, uh, wanted to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip, verse 21 of chapter 12, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, Andrew, and Philip came and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour 
has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You see, the hour is about his destiny and his glory. Because his destiny was to die so that he would rise again, ascend into glory, and be exalted as the Son of God. The hour is about his destiny and his glory. Then, of course, it says in verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. So when you come to John 13, it simply says, Jesus knowing that his hour had come. I mean, this was it. This is why he came. Everything about his life moved to this hour. It was a night of predetermination. And everything about the night, everything about the whole week, from the time he rode into Jerusalem on Monday, not Sunday, there's no Palm Sunday, it's Palm Monday. He came in on Monday. He cleansed the temple on Tuesday, began to teach on Tuesday, taught on Wednesday and Thursday, answering questions, dialoguing with the Pharisees and Sadducees, as well as challenging them now you come to Thursday night, but everything was predetermined. Everything about the day was predetermined. In fact, it says way back in, in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 22, it says this. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on the which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. And they said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? He said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. You see, everything was predetermined. God orchestrated the whole event. God was in charge of Satan. He was in charge of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priest. He was in charge of all those who came to mock him and to ridicule him. He was in charge of the trial. He was in charge of the time of the trial. He was in charge of the time that he was in each trial. He was in charge of everything. The precision of the cross is a remarkable study because he would only die when he chose to die. What did he say? No one takes my life from me, John 10. I lay down on my own initiative. And if I lay down on my own initiative, I can take it up whenever I want to take it up again. He was in charge of when he died. He was in charge of when he gave up the spirit charge of everything, because everything about life centers around a predetermined plan by Almighty God. That should give you and I great comfort, knowing that no matter what happens on this day, this weekend, next week, there is a predetermined plan that's already been set in motion by a sovereign God who rules over all. And he doesn't miss anything. It was a night of predetermination. It was a night of affection. A night of affection. The Bible says this. 
knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This was a night of affection. The love of our Lord for his men is unsurpassed. The love of our Lord for you and me is unsurpassed. We will never understand the depths of God's love. In fact, John would say, as he wrote 1 John chapter 3, he would say, oh, what, what manner of love is this? The Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And the word what manner is a unique phrase used three times in the New Testament to talk about something that's from another dimension, that's otherworldly, that's alien-like. In other words, the love that our Father has for us is so alien-like. It's so from another world. It's, it's from another dimension because you can't recognize it by what you see on this planet. It goes way beyond that. Oh, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And here is our Lord. Having loved his own, he loved them fully. He loved them completely. He loved them totally to the end. He even loved Judas. Because our Lord would have to live out Matthew chapter 5, verse number 44, when he said, love your enemies. He even loved Judas. In fact, when they came to get him in the garden later that night, and Peter cut off the high priest's servant's ear, his name is Malchus, the Lord healed Malchus's ear. Why would he do that? Who cares about the earlobe? Who really cares about that? It's not going to affect his hearing. But our Lord would love his enemies even to the very end. And the most insignificant miracle of our Lord was the loudest and the loveliest miracle he ever performed. Because he loved his enemies to the very end. That's why he could say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He would offer forgiveness to those who would one day repent of their sins and give their life to him. What a beautiful picture of our Lord's love. It was a night of supreme affection, a night of predetermination. It was a night of humiliation, a night of humiliation. Look at this. It says this. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas, Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Judas, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Why would he do that? Why would he begin to wipe the disciples' feet? Well, Luke tells us in Luke 22. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Now, picture the scene. Understand that this is the eve of the crucifixion. Our Lord is about to die for the sins of man. And yet, on the disciples' mind was, 
which one of them was the best? Which one of them was the greatest? You see, they, they're, they're, they were as selfish as we are today. They could still only think of themselves. In spite of the pain that our Lord was in, in spite of the rejection that he had faced and would continue to face, in spite of the loneliness in which he experienced because truly he was all alone, he would stand by himself, everyone in the room would reject him, they'd betray him, they would deny him, they would run out from him. He knew all that. And yet, as these men began, began to argue about who was the greatest, our Lord would just slowly get up and gird himself with a towel. He'd begin to wash the disciples' feet. Because you see, our Lord was a servant to the very end. Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Philippians 2 talks about the fact that he, he became a servant. He became obedient, even to the point of death. Everything about our Lord's life was a, was a life of service. And so in the very end, when all the men can think of was themselves, what did the Lord do? He served them. It was a night of humiliation. They should be serving him. They should be praying for him. They should be sitting down saying, Lord, what can we do? Is there anything that we can say? Lord, what do you need us to do? What we're there for you? But that wasn't on their minds. What was on their minds was themselves. And our Lord, in all humility, would get up, gird himself with an apron, and begin to wash the disciples' feet. Now, the great thing about this is that Peter would learn from this episode. He would learn greatly because over in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 5, it says this. He says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in the proper time. Clothe yourself. What's he thinking about? He's thinking about the apron. The word clothe yourself means to tie in a knot. He is thinking way back to the eve of the crucifixion. And how our Lord humbled himself and began to wash disciples' feet. And so it was a night of predetermination. It was a night of affection. It was a night of humiliation. But, but it was also a night of instruction. And John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 is all about our Lord instructing his men. But, but the pinnacle of his, of his instruction would be in John chapter 13. Because listen to what it says. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. 
for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. He says, Peter, look, you're already clean. But you're going to need a daily cleansing. You've been washed. But you need a daily cleansing. This is a great reminder of the forgiveness of sins. But then it goes on and says, so, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Now, of course, they knew what he did to them. He washed their feet. But that's not the point. That's not the instruction he needs to give them. Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than the master, nor is one who was sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. This becomes so powerful to understand this. You see, there's a whole denomination based on this chapter that washes people's feet. But that's not the point of what Jesus did. Look what he says. It says, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Not do what I did to you. Do as I did to you. What's the point? What did Christ do? What is the instruction we are to glean from this? And this is where we in Christianity have so readily missed the boat. And the point is simply this. When, when adversity is present in your life, humility needs to be the priority of your life so that your ministry is absolutely powerful. The whole point of the story is we are all, we all are this way. We want people to look to us. We want people to serve us. We want people to meet us in our need. And Christ says, listen, when you're in the greatest amount of pain, when you're in the greatest amount of loneliness, when no one loves you, when everybody rejects you, what do you do? Sit in the corner, have a pity party for yourself? No. Get up, tie a slave's apron around you, gird yourself, and begin to serve everybody who's going to deny you, reject you. In the midst of your pain, serve. That's the point. That's the instruction. That's what he wants them to understand because that's what our Lord came to do. He came to serve man, not be served by man. We, in, in today's modern life, we just want to be served. That's why the disciples had this argument that would arise again. It, it, it would come about on several occasions during the ministry of Christ. But on this night... It was a shocking night because they were so self-absorbed. And yet Christ was not. Do as I have done to you. Remember this because what you need to understand is that when you are the loneliness, when you are in the greatest amount of pain, 
when you have been rejected by everybody, when no one is with you and on your side, and no one wants to say, what can I do for you? This is when you serve the most. This is when you reach out in humility and minister to everybody who has caused you pain or will cause you pain. Could you imagine if the church did that? Could you imagine that if in your marriage, when your husband never responded to you, never led you, never did anything for you, and you were completely lonely and and all by yourself, in the greatest amount of emotional pain, you said, you know what? I'm going to serve my husband. I'm going to reach out in humility and do what only I can do for my husband. Think about it that way. You see, that's where ministry is at its best. And that's what our Lord wanted to instruct his men on. That's why this night was a night of instruction. The hallmark of his instruction because every one of us becomes so self-absorbed, we can only think of us. And my time is fleeting. But it was also, uh, it was a night of, of prediction. Not just predetermination. Not just affection. Not just humiliation. Not just instruction. But it was a night of prediction. Because he would predict the fact that Judas was going to betray him. He knew everything. And then it was a night of declaration. Here's the declaration in verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you. A little while longer you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Here's the great declaration. It's a new commandment. It's a new measure by which you understand the commandment. There's a new standard. No longer do you love one another as you love yourself. Now you love one another as I have loved you. How have I loved you? How have I given myself to you? What have I done for you? You see, love... Love never asks you to do for me. It never does. Love never says, what will you do for me? Because Jesus never asked that question. Jesus loved. It's an action verb. But we want to say, you know, I'm going to do this, but what will you do for me? What will you return back to me? And Jesus said, here's the new commandment. I'm the standard. You're no longer the standard. You're too self-absorbed to be the standard. I want you to love as I have loved you. Selflessly, sacrificially, volitionally, painfully. I want you to love as I have loved you. That's what I want you to do. I don't want you to go around asking, what will you do for me? That's irrelevant. That's, that's manipulation. That's not love. We love to manipulate. We just don't love to love. We love to manipulate people into loving us. But love never asks you to do for me. That's manipulation. Love always does for you. 
Love is an action verb. On top of all this, this night was a night of transformation. It was a night of transformation. Go back to Luke chapter 22. It says in verse number 14, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. In other words, I have looked forward to this for so long. If you only knew what I was longing to do, I have, I have, I have lived for this moment. If you understand that I could not wait to this night. This is such a glorious night. It's such a grand night. It's such a beautiful night. I have waited so long earnestly for this night so that we could eat this Passover. Because this was the last one. This was the last official Passover. He's bringing it all to an end. He says this, For I say to you, I shall never again eat, eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There are four cups at a Passover. The first cup is the, is the cup of thanksgiving. The cup of blessing. They, they would give thanks to God for how it is he delivered them from Egyptian bondage. The Passover was, was the pinnacle of celebration for Israel. Because they knew they had been delivered by God. And so they would give thanks. That was the first cup. The, the second cup during the meal well, was the cup of plagues in which the host would, would dip his finger in the wine and then he would sprinkle it on the tablecloth, signifying the, the ten plagues of Egypt. But the third cup, the cup of redemption, is the one he transforms. That's why it's a night of transformation. He takes the cup of redemption and says, look, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, which they knew well. It was all about the coming of the Messiah and the ushering in of the new covenant that would be ratified by blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, I want to let you know, from now on, your physical deliverance, as great as it was, cannot be compared to your spiritual deliverance. The very fact that you're going to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into my kingdom, you cannot substitute anything for that. Spiritual deliverance is the hallmark of life. It's all going to happen because there's going to be a transformation. I'm going to transform the cup. So you understand the cup of redemption. So that when I die on Calvary's cross, you'll realize I died to transform your life. I didn't come to just add my life to yours. Christianity is not about addition. 
It's about transformation. Christianity can be about subtraction, getting rid of my life, but it's all about transformation. My life has been totally transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ, my Lord. And so here he comes and says, this is what I want to do. I couldn't wait to get here tonight. Why? Because this night, the last Passover, I'm going to transform the cup of redemption and turn it into the cup of my spiritual redeeming of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And I want you to always do this in remembrance of me. I never want you to forget what I've done for you. Because what I have done for you, nobody else can do. Only I can do it. And of course, all this was about the hour of predetermination. And he would set in motion everything that would lead him to Calvary's Mount. Lead him to be crucified for you and for me. Lead him to, to bear in his body your sins and mine. Where for three hours of darkness, he would bear the wrath of his father. So at the end of that time, he could say what? It is finished. What was finished? Redemption had been accomplished. He had paid the price. Only thing left to do was to die and rise again. But he had to die. He had to. He had to bear in his body your sin and mine. And that's why the wrath of God came to Calvary on that day. And tonight, we want to remember the Lord's table and what the bread and the cup symbolize. This is my cup. This is my body, which is given for you. That's the whole aspect of substitutionary atonement. This is my body. I'm gonna, my body is going to bear your sins. I'm going to die as your substitute. So you don't have to pay for your sins. I'm going to pay for your sins. That's why we're here tonight, to celebrate that. To realize that some 2,000 years ago, everything in the Old Testament pointed to that day in Jerusalem where our Lord would be crucified. And we look back on that day, and we have so much praise and thanksgiving to offer to our God because we've been forgiven of our sins. And so tonight, we're going to partake of the Lord's table together. We're going to have a chance to, to once again celebrate the bread and the cup. This is something we do every month. We probably should do it every day. Because we should never forget Calvary. We should never forget what our Lord paid so you and I could live with him. If you're visiting with us tonight, you are more than welcome to partake at the Lord's table. The only requirement is that you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That you know your sins are forgiven. That you've been born again. And we want you to celebrate the bread and the cup with us. Because it helps us remember once again what our Lord has done for us. As the men come down, we're going to distribute the elements to you. Ask that you hold on to them until all have been served. And remember, the, the bread is on top. I know it's a little difficult sometimes to open it up. But the, 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 the wafer is on top. 
in the first layer of the cellophane, and then the cup is the second layer of the cellophane. Now, that's a little too much information there, but that's just the way it works. And it's just the best way to do it. And so hold on to it until all have been served, and then we'll partake together. It was the Apostle Paul who said that in the night in which our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, and said, this is my body which is given for you. You know what would be so great? If we just had one, one loaf of unleavened bread. Because it signifies the body, right? And that all of us would just partake from that piece of matzah bread that unleavened bread, as we would pass it around the room. I know it would leave crumbs on the floor and make a mess, and it would take a long time to do all that kind of stuff. But you know what, that, that would just be so great. 
Because it, it just shows us the, the oneness of the body of Christ. But remember what Peter said. He said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. He died that we would die to sin and live a righteous life. Righteous living is the hallmark of a life that's been given to Christ, that's been crucified unto Christ. Say as the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We take in our hands this little piece of, I'm not sure what it is, but it is what it is, right? And it symbolizes unleavened bread. But we take this and we put it in our hands and we understand and come to grips with the fact that our Lord's body substituted for us. He died in our place. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Why? We've been forgiven. Let's partake together. Lord God, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, that we could gather with our families. And just for a brief moment, look back and remember the sacrifice of Christ. We are so incredibly grateful. So we offer you thanks. And Lord, I guess the greatest thanks would be to live your life. All men will know that you're, we're your disciples. Because Lord, we don't ask for people to do for us. We just do for them. We just actively pursue them. We love them as you have loved us. And for that we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. In the same manner, Paul says, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, the greatest thing about our Lord, he was never a victim. He was never a victim. He was in charge of everything that took place. He was the victorious warrior. He was the, the victory king. Even though they, they beat him and they mocked him and they spat upon him and they hung him on a tree, it pleased his father to crush him. Because that's how he would redeem a bride for his son. We have been bought back from the slave market of sin to live a righteous life. We've been wiped clean. The Lord said to Peter, you don't need a bath. You're here tonight, you're a Christian, you don't need a bath. You just need a daily cleansing. That daily confession that builds that communion with your Lord. Let's partake together. Lord God, once again, we say thank you for the redeeming blood of the Lamb. What a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful life we have because of you. You have forgiven us, Lord, and we are grateful. 
We realize, Lord, that we do sin, and yet you have forgiven us all of our sins, past, present, and future. You just want us to come in and confess them, that their relationship would be pure and open and clean. And we pray that, Lord, we live that way, that we might honor and glorify your precious name forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.